HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's episode of Cooking Issues has been brought to you by the International Culinary Center. For more information, visit internationalculinarycenter.com. Hello and welcome to Cooking Issues. Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Well, we're back from Tokyo, right, Seth? Yeah. yeah. You have a good time over there? Yeah. No, because you're not speaking to the microphone. Yeah. 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 You had a good time there? Yes, did you? I had a fantastic time. Crazy. In fact, uh, the only problem is we have so many questions to get to that I don't know if I'm going to have time to talk about you Tokyo. You said we have a one o'clock here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, some other time. Since we have two weeks, we were gone for two weeks, it turned out it was impossible for Nastasha and I to schedule doing the Cooking Issues show with our work schedule over there in the Japan because we were working bar basically until right before the uh, show and so we couldn't really prep out for it, right? Yeah. Anyway, call your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. All right, so let's... Wait, is that right? Yeah. Wow. Silver I don't even, even listen to it. I just like... <laughs> you just turn on the speech and it just like sprays out of your face and you, don't, mm-hmm. you have no idea. Okay. Well, actually, you should, since we don't have time to talk to Tokyo, they should go to the blog. Oh, hey, I restarted the blog again, right? I got uh, the first post I did was an apology for not putting a post up. And the second one was when Nastasha and I went to Jiro's uh, Sushi along with Mark Ladner. A lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Jiro loves money. Jiro dreams of the money. They, they, my favorite part was if the old man or the old man can watch me eat my uh, melon, I think is what he said. Well, you know, look, <laughs> for those of you who don't know, this is a Jiro Dreams of Sushi is the uh, is the, the movie that's out now. And it's this 86-year-old dude. He's 82 years old. He got three Michelin stars. Basically, all he does, he wakes up very early, goes to Sakiji Market, you know, fish market in Tokyo, gets the fish. Shows up and his, you know, must be 60s son, right? Yeah. Is, who must be, he's dreaming of his dad dying <laughs> so that he could take over the family business. Uh, so, so these guys, along with like a couple other apprentices, are sitting there and this 86-year-old dude is pumping out the sushi every day. But when you show up, it's like $300, $350 a pop and it's one course every minute for about 19 minutes and then they move you to another seat and you eat your melon and Nastasha and Mark were like like all like bent out of shape like pretzels worried about like hurrying out he's like they want us to leave they want us to leave. I could give a rat's ass whether they want me to leave or not you know, you know what I mean it's like if, look if you invite me into your place and I'm spending $350 it's like you know you don't have a right to kick me out in like uh, you know within 30 minutes yeah. you know I understand you. Yeah, There's I mean, just anxiety. He's right not a hooker. He's not like you're done. You're out. You know what I mean? The melon. Yeah. The melon is uh, not that I would you know not know that about you that. Would know, no, yeah. no. <laughs> Imagine it. Yeah. Anyway, no. whatever. 
Uh, but the quality of sushi was amazing. Go see uh, the write-up on cookingissues.com versus this, which is Cooking Issues, the radio show. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Uh, Daniel Seattle writes, Hey, Nastasha and Dave. I uh, love the show. I'm a music teacher and food nerd who loves listening to a Restaurant Shop Talk. My wife and I throw big dinner parties for 12 to 20 people in our small apartment. Uh, what are the current best practices for making coffee for a whole bunch of people? Usually our guests have at least one small cup each and usually more, so I shoot for at least uh, six to eight ounces per person. Normally we do French press or a pour-over or an aeropress, but those don't scale up well. Even if we do a few batches and transfer them to thermal carafes, what do you think, Daniel from Seattle? Well, uh, if you're willing to do a pour-over uh, technique, I think what, one thing you could do is switch to a much larger format when you're doing your, your pour-over. So uh, with any of these things, you, you're, you're, you're into a couple problems. Like fresh coffee is always better than coffee that's uh, not fresh. Duh. But there's a couple of reasons. One is that the temperature of the coffee uh, goes down. Like that's the obvious one. And two, um, the aroma of the coffee disperses. And actually the stuff in the coffee itself, the flavors of the coffee, uh, tend to physically change with time a- after they're brewed. Now – um, so some of that can be mitigated by a proper carafe handling. So if you want to use one of your small-scale methods and put it in a carafe and have good results, the first trick is to um, add a boatload of boiling water to your carafe first. Let it sit for a couple of minutes, cover it, dump it out, add another layer of boiling water, you know, another thing of boiling water to it. Now leave that boiling water in, and now your carafe is very, very hot. Otherwise, even though your carafe is thermally insulated, you're wasting a lot of the heat energy of the coffee just warming up the glass walls of the carafe before you add any stuff to it. Makes sense, right, Stas? Mm-hmm. Right. Same is true when you're adding liquid nitrogen to a carafe. You, you end up losing a lot of the initial batch of liquid nitrogen that you add because you need to chill down the carafe to... to to a low temperature. So the first thing I would suggest is preheating your craft. Okay. Now, uh, the second choice you have is to scale up your mode of production. The problem with most uh, scale-ups is that you radically change the actual parameters of your, of your brewing. And by that, I mean either the brew time or the brew water temperature. And either one of those things can really drastically uh, influence the flavor uh, result in your coffee. So it's very hard to do in a French press unless you were to custom create some sort of a French press operation in a big pot. But I've noticed that whenever you're doing things uh, in a large scale, it can still be difficult because the physical time to press something down is going to be different. The physical time to drain something off in a large situation is going to be different. So here's what I recommend. If you're, gonna, if you're willing to do pour-over technique, uh, go online and purchase the large, large coffee filters that are meant to go f- with industrial uh, – for industrial size like Bunomatic coffee machines that make 20 cups at a time. They're much, much larger, a lot more surface area than a standard one. Put it into a colander. Put your grounds into that with a bed depth that's roughly similar to what you would have in a normal pour-over coffee situation. Put uh, that colander over a larger pot that you can put into a bain-marie of, of hot water and then heat your water for the coffee and pour it all over at once so that your brew time is roughly similar to what your normal pour over uh, drip time would be and that should create and then pour it directly into a thermal uh, carafe and serve out and that's probably as close as I think I can get you just off the top of my head having never done it myself what do you think so? it's good good yeah alright uh, my, my iPad my, my stuff is so long winded that my iPad turns off in between and I have I think to there's a way you can there's a way I can keep it on? Nastasha, so. you on that for next week? Okay. Hey, which, which reminds me, I just want to tell listeners that we now have iPhone and iPad compatibility for the live stream, so you guys can uh, tune in live on the go. Oh, hell. Hell yeah. 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 
All right. Uh, Jonas from Switzerland writes in uh, about meat. Hello, Nastasha and Dave. I'm a chef who's been working with the sous vide technique for some time. In 2011, we tasted various uh, foods in sous vide water baths and published the results we liked in an iPhone app called sous vide degree Celsius. How the hell do you search for the degree symbol? Crazy. I don't know how you do that. Yeah, I don't know. I have no idea. Anyway, uh, recently I've been asked to present low temperature cooking and the science behind it at culinary schools. One of the most stunning examples when presenting it, uh, presenting the sous vide method is, of course, low temperature cooking for long periods of time, as in uh, spare ribs or beef shins, veal neck, etc. One question that has often come up, I don't know how to answer, is up to what temperature or for how long do uh, collagenase enzymes remain active uh, when cooking sous vide? Uh, Okay, and then he brings up two articles. One is Studying the Effects of uh, Heat on Meat Proteins by Tornberg, 2005, which says at temperatures between 53 and 63 degrees, the collagen denaturation occurs, uh, followed by collagen fiber shrinkage. And then on 497, it quotes an article from 1970 that shows that collagenase, which would be an, an enzyme, by the way, ACE is enzyme always, and collagenase would be an enzyme that breaks down collagen, could remain active in the meat at cooking temperatures below 60 degrees, whereas uh, faster heating... Um, up to 70 or 80 Celsius, they were inactivated. But then, uh, to contradistinct to that, he says in the abstract for uh, effect of prolonged heat treatment from 48 to 63 on toughness and cooking loss of pork, which is a recent article, uh, the residual activity of cat hespin, which is actually a different enzyme, by the way, uh, in uh, low temperature, long time treated pork was mainly affected by temperature, showing the highest activity between 58 and 63 degrees Celsius. So, what's up with that? How can we uh, go for that? Uh, you know, how can we go and how long does it have an effect? Is it 60 degrees, 63 degrees? Can you help me sussing this crap out? Best wishes from Switzerland, Jonas. Okay, first of all, uh, for those of you that couldn't follow a damn word I was just saying, the argument here, the question is, in low temperature cooking, is the majority it, it, like there there are enzymes that are still working in low temperature cooking, and those enzymes break down various proteins in uh, in the meat. Okay, and the two main protein fractions we're looking to break down are connective tissue fractions, which is mainly collagen, uh, and uh, muscle uh, protein uh, portions like actin, myosin, the actual contraction portions of, of muscles. Now, collagenase is an enzyme that is present. Uh, it causes awesome stuff that Nastasha likes to look up on the internet, like gas gangrene. Like, it's the thought of like a gangrenous lesion and uh, is sending Nastasha into queasy results now. Now look, uh, yes, these enzymes uh, keep working, and enzymes, especially protein breakdown enzymes, have a huge uh, impact on the texture of fish uh, that's cooked low temperature, and it's why fish can go pasty and mushy. And for a long time, it's been theorized that um, these enzymes are also a lot of what's going on in tenderizing low-temperature cooked meat. I just don't believe it. I just don't think so. I think it has some effect, right? But I think it's not the majority uh, of effect. Furthermore, there's two main categories of enzymes you're looking at here. Collagenase enzymes, like I say, break down collagen, but in the recent literature, they're very, very uh, they're, they're not very often mentioned at all. The others are different. There are cat hespins, which break down the... Um is break down the muscle proteins, and those are in, uh, they're contained with normally in intact muscle inside the lysosomes, can be released on cooking, and there's recent studies on that that they are released, and they ma- maintain some activity, and so they can, uh, they can probably act towards muscle protein, um, de- um, you know, tenderness, but it's probably not 
the majority of the effect. The majority of the effect in low-temperature cooking is probably just a thermal uh, degradation of collagen over long periods of time at elevated temperatures. Uh, that, that is my feeling. Also, these articles are, uh, you know, there a lot of them that are done are review articles, and so you, it's like you're comparing apples and oranges when you're comparing temperatures because they're denaturing proteins in different environments, uh, you know, purified or not purified in different muscles in the presence of different fat. They're measuring different temperatures, i.e. the temperature they're cooking to versus internal temperatures. And so it, it's really impossible. You're comparing uh, a- apples and oranges. And, and I read them and um, they didn't make uh, too much. In other words, I wasn't putting too much of a, of a weight in it. Does that make sense, Astash? Uh Okay, but when I was researching this stuff, I, I did look up a new – there's a new enzyme out um, – that is called uh, collagenolytic protease MCP01 that comes from a deep sea bacteria that can break down proteins at low temperatures like in the fridge. So that might be something new to look at because that's a very recent uh, – that's a recent thing. That's, uh, uh, you know, 2012, I think. The other thing is is that uh, the muscles that these guys choose to do their tests on – and this is a problem with all meat, te- all meat texture uh, things. They always choose muscles that freaking suck. Like the two articles that you uh, put in, they use um, a lot of them uh, semitendinosus muscle, which is like – Eye of round it sucks. It's a crappy muscle, and the reason they choose that crappy muscle is because it doesn't have a lot of variation in the muscle, so it's easy to run tests on. But it's not an accurate representation of what's going to happen when you're actually cooking meat that you would rather eat. Okay. Uh, now, uh, another thing. Uh, oh, by the way, that collag- collagenase enzyme, uh, enzyme thing you, that you cited, and it was cited a couple times. It was in, done in 1970. It's really old research. And then I read some more recent research that said, you know, well, I don't know that that's still, you know, that's not, I don't think it's really a current research. But I found this awesome website that you should all go to right now www.beefresearch.org. Beefresearch.org. Beefresearch.org. And look for a ranking of beef muscles for tenderness. It's from the University of Nebraska. And it's an awesome. PDF basically where they, they tell you uh, in very fine detail what the problems are with running studies on tenderness and what tenderness means uh, and the difference in tenderness when it's measured by a machine versus when it's measured by a person and it ranks uh, the different muscles which is awesome and then they have a supplementary website which is freaking fantastic called bovine.unl.edu now if you go to that uh, PDF I told you they mistakenly put a www in front of uh, bovine bovine.unl and then you you can't get to the page forget the www no www just bovine.unl.edu and they have a three-dimensional cow with the muscles on it and the meat and the skeleton and 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 you can click any one and get any one particular muscle and spin it around in 3d and like go in and out and they have videos of a butcher breaking down every single cut that they have in that thing so it's a fantastic resource i can't believe i haven't seen it until now I hope that all of anyone who's listening here is well finished listening to us. And then after we're done talking, go uh, and and check check that out. And first of all, Nebraska, they know their meat. Am I right? Nebraska meat. I mean, come on, Nebraska possibilities endless. That's the state motto. Oh yeah. Did you know that? No. Yeah. Shout out to Angela Gabatz, our uh, our Nebraska uh, intern of all times, all times. Okay. Uh, question three from Paul uh, about invertase from uh, it's an enzyme heavy show. Enzyme heavy show. And remember, ace means enzyme, peoples. Peoples. All right. Hello, Nastasha and Dave. What? No Jack? No Jack? Anyway. Um, 
I would like to ask about Invertes. I only really know of it being used in those terrible cherry cordial bonbons, but I'd like to know if it could be used in interesting ways in other applications or if there's a similar product that can similarly break down a less or non-sweet sugar to be used in a more savory application. P.S. Huge fan. Thank you. Uh, great info that I'll be using one day after I finish my upcoming training with Daniel Balud. Well, good job working with Daniel Balud. Badass. Well, you know, one of those, you know, major, major badasses, Daniel Balud. Okay. Uh, from Paul. Okay. Here's the thing. Invertase, for all of you that don't uh, know what's going on, it, Invertase is an enzyme that breaks down sucrose, which is uh, a disaccharide, right? It's got a fructose uh, and a, uh, a glucose, right? And, and basically, the Invertase breaks that down into glucose and fructose. Now, uh, Invertase, uh, in, invert sugar, uh, which you can buy as trimaline or things like that, are very useful in uh, confectionery because it can minimize or prevent crystallization or affect, you know, uh, Minimize crystal size, uh, increase the moisture holding capability of uh, of a product. So it's it's good. It's good stuff. It's useful. Now, uh, the way this is used in bonbons, the terrible cherry bonbons that you that you know you refer to, is you make a fondant. Now fondants are uh, crystallized. They look like solids, but what they really are is a network of sugar crystals with a sugar syrup in between those crystals, right? And when you add the invertase to that and then coat that uh, fondant in uh, chocolate, let's say, uh, what happens over time is uh, the sugar the sugar is broken down into invertase. It loses its crystal structure and reverts to a semi liquid syrup, right? So what you're using is the fact that um, <clears throat> is that you you have this syrup that's being bound with sucrose crystals, you break down the sucrose, and then you have this liquidy center. Right. Now, uh, it, the Invertase is used for, for other things, and so uh, I, looked up the, I looked up the website for those guys, and it says it's used, uh, you can make invert with it, which is better than acid, uh, you know, acid-catalyzed uh, inversion, which is what you normally do when you're making cooking sugar because it's more controlled, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Sugar, if you, make, if you invert sugar that way, it's less apt to turn brown when cooking as opposed to acid-catalyzed inversion. Uh, it's also used uh, in fruit juices and jams uh, to increase sweetness and increase resistance to crystallization and things like that. Okay. Uh, But you can't really... I think it really only works on glucose and sucrose. I don't know of any other enzymes that would do that. If you wanted a slowly liquefying center, uh, what I would recommend is uh, using an enzyme that breaks down pectin or breaks down any hydrocolloid at a relatively slow rate. So I would get a a, a pectin that sets relatively quickly, stir in some uh, SPL to it, uh, set it, and get it cold fast so that pectinase doesn't break it down too quickly, then you could enrobe that pectin thing in something, and then the pectin would dissolve over time and you get a liquid. Or something like that where you broke down a hydrocolloid structure instead of a sugar structure. Does that make sense, Stas? Mm-hmm. You could also probably do that with something that breaks down a starch the same way that uh, undercooked, uh, like, uh, undercooked like custard things can liquefy over time if the starch gets broken down. Anyway, those are my thoughts. Eh, take it Take it, take it or dump. Mm. <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway, let's take our first commercial break and come back. Call your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128, The Cooking Issue. If you want to be a great chef, you can't learn everything from within the walls of a classroom. That's why the French Culinary Institute has evolved into the International Culinary Center. When you come here, you don't just learn basic culinary skills. You come to understand and to feel the whole culinary world. You have to network. 
You have to observe the true meaning of world-class performance. You have to intern at some of the world's great restaurants. At the International Culinary Center's campuses in New York, California, and Italy, we will expose you to the whole of the culinary world, one that is evolving daily at a very high speed. The International Culinary Center offers a wide range of courses, including culinary, pastry, and bread baking, to Italian, wine, management, culinary technology, and food writing. For more information, visit internationalculinarycenter.com. Jack, was that you? That was me. Give me some whole culinary world again. Give me some. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. The whole My radio voice. I love that. That's That's good good business. Guys, real quick before you go on. uh, So we were at Bonnaroo covering the event this weekend, and the gastropod truck dude said hello. Oh, Jeremiah Bullfrogs? Yeah, I go up to him. I'm like, hey, can we interview you for Heritage Radio? And he's like, oh, my God, you're the voice. It's cooking issues. You're the producer. Nice. Yeah. He awesome. listens every week. Are we really? The, are we on the yeah. air right now? Yeah, we're on the air right now. <laughs> yeah, this is how we do. We talk on the air. That's how the radio works. Uh, yeah, we're a big fan of the Jeremiah Bullfrog. We did an event with him maybe a year ago, almost exactly a year ago, yeah. uh, in uh, in Miami. And uh, I lo- like like the crew that comes to uh, frequent the, uh, his uh, gastro, ga- ga- pod. gastro pod truck. Turns out to be like a really great crew of customers. We really had a great time at their event. I like loved the crowd in Miami. I thought they were really, really fun. Anyway, uh, so you interviewed them. What did you use it for? Uh, we did a piece on Bonnaroo that will be up on the website today. Is Bonnaroo the thing with the people, the young people who they meet each other and, he's, and the ladies like, mm-hmm. I'm going to rock your world? No, it's the guys who threw Guga Muga. It's the big uh, music festival in Tennessee. We have a call coming in, though. So oh, hold all on. right. Call, what's that one I'm talking about? Bataroo? The one where people get high? No, the one on the wall, on the, on the, on the, like the one sheets on uh, on the street, and it's like I like to I like to mess oh, with chickens. Oh yeah, no, that's bad. Do bad to room. Something. Hey, caller, you're on the air. Hello. Hi, I'm Chris from the uh, UK. Hey, how you doing? Good, thanks. Yourself? Yeah, doing all right. All right. Good. Yeah. Uh, I have a question on egg-free custards and egg-free meringues, as in il flotton. Right. Egg- how would you best go around it? Hmm. Well, uh, uh, okay, so for a meringue-like texture, you're going to want to use, uh, you basically, you just need something that's going to be a whipping agent It's going to hold, right? So you, okay. So you can use um, a protein that acts in a similar way to egg whites, and so for that, I, I would use something like a VersaWhip, and you can get either one that's soy-based or one that's uh, casein-based. I mean, whey-based, rather, not casein, whey-based. So, okay. Uh, and you know those ones they they whip when you're getting one of those things the the issue is is that they sometimes take a long time to whip up and they don't cook off the same way so they're not going to hold their structure when they're done the way that uh, a meringue will but for uh, like a very quick serve something like if you just want that texture uh, it'll work um, on a custard. Uh, or on a meringue that's going to hold. I mean, the, the, the issue is if you're wanting to go egg-free, presumably it's to go vegan. So I can't recommend something like a gelatin or some other set. You could... It's uh, not the vegan that's the problem. It's an egg allergy. Ah, okay. Well, I mean, you could then set... If you were going to whip something with a Versa Whip, you can then set it with gelatin so that it holds after it chills down. And then you could have something that holds up over time. Or you could use an alternative... If you did want to go vegan, you could use an alternative hydrocolloid that would hold the meringue over time. And then what you're just doing is using the Versa Whip as a uh, whipping aid, uh, you know, as, as, as a you know, foaming agent. So then you would, you would have a, a meringue hold over time. If you wanted to do something that was going to be heat-stable, uh, like if you were going to cook off a meringue in, a, in, a, in an oven, then you'd have to probably go a little more 
uh, hardcore because you'd need a, a hydrocolloid that could withstand um, uh, heat. And so for then, you, you might be able to move to something like an agar, uh, but you'd have to make sure that it whips up before it cools down. Or if you, okay. will, or if you want really heat-stable, because agar will melt, you'd have to go with a gel end. But you'd have a real problem. I've tried doing it, whipping up gel ends, um, whipping up gel end uh, gels, uh, you know, so that they're stable before they set. Another alternative to whipping, to setting a gel uh, in a foam is to use a slow-setting um, sodium alginate uh, foam. I don't like to do it. I've done it. The problem is, is that I don't think sodium alginate tastes very good, right? So what you would do is you would use a whipping agent and uh, sodium alginate, and then you'd whip it into a foam, and then you'd add a little calcium at the last second, and then it, it would, you know, uh, it would set into a foamed gel. You know what I mean? And and yeah. that, and that one, uh, I've done it. Uh, you have to be careful to not be able to taste the alginate, right? Um, okay. The other for the custard. Um, I, I'd have to do uh, I'd have to do some research. I've never thought of uh, of eggless custards. I mean, the way that I would the, you know off the top of my head, right? You can without egg set things into custard like textures using something like iota carrageenan, especially in the presence of milk. Very small amounts of iota carrageenan will produce uh, kind of a custardy texture. The problem is iota is a little elastic, so you want to have it just set. And so you would use iota and maybe a little bit of kappa carrageenan to make it into uh, have a little more of a break to it, as opposed to iota, which is going to be a little more rubbery. But I've had you know Wiley's done uh, both pectin-based sets and um, iota slash kappa carrageenan mixed-based sets of custards that I thought were uh, very very good. You know, almost like a panna cotta texture. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Uh, and yeah. yeah, and th- those can be totally achieved with uh, various uh, hydrocarbons. But I would stick with something kind of simple, like carrageenan is relatively simple to work with. And um, uh, mixtures of I- – the great thing about iota is also that uh, it will reset uh, after, it, after it breaks a little bit. But a, a mixture of mainly iota at a very low concentration and, um, and a little bit of kappa will give you a nice uh, custardy uh, texture. Not, you know, you'd have to adjust the firmness a little bit, you know? what I mean but okay. you could get there and those are all available I would assume from the uh, the modernist pantry folk Probably. Uh, I, I don't know and then if you needed some thickening of it right if, if, if it didn't feel thick enough with whatever ingredients you were adding I would thicken it with a, I wouldn't try to thicken it with the in other words like inc- increase the creaminess of it with uh, the iota and the kappa then you would move to more of a thickening agent something like an LBG locust bean or just a traditional something make it thicker like add more of something that's unctuous to it you know I mean, you don't need to go to hydrocolic route on that but that's that's the way i'd uh, approach it okay thank you all right have, uh, and, uh, let us know how it works thank you right. will do all right thanks a lot bye all right so uh paul k uh wrote in on meat cooking whole muscles hi dave i was at an event a while ago where i saw a steak i think an entre coat being prepared on a barbecue by which i think he means grill Mm-hmm. I think he means grill, as far as our, our terms. Anyway, uh, in a way I'd never seen before. Rather than cutting the steaks and then cooking them, an entire cylinder of beef was uh, barbecued, rested out, and only then cut. It seems it was incredibly efficient, as the result was very beautiful. Every steak had a perfect gradient from crusty on the lateral edge uh, to a disc that was essentially raw in the center. Normally, you only see this sort of gradient once you cut into the steak. One, is this technique well-known, and if so, does it have a name? Two, what cuts of beef would you recommend for this technique? And three, do you have any tips on how to make this work well when cooking four kilograms of beef at a time, I can imagine that cock-ups can be expensive. Cock-ups, that's a good way to say mess-ups. I like that, because it's kind of almost dirty, but not. Uh, I guess it'll be critical to start with beef at room temperature. Thanks, Paul. Okay. Uh, now, when you're, when you're uh, dealing with it, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, essentially what they're doing is roasting the meat on a grill. 
right? It's basically roast meat. Think about like prime rib. Prime rib is delicious that way. So basically, what you're well, not basically what you're doing here is using the grill to to instead uh, roast something. And I think the the most um, similar idea would be like a rotisserie where you pull off something that's rare. You know, I mean, before before it's cooked all the way through, because then it would just be done manually. I would assume that these people who were using the grill were constantly turning the meat, and it's fundamentally different from a long. Mo- when most people say barbecue, what they're referring to is long, long, long term cooking, where the meat's t- cooked totally all the way through, um, right on a grill, versus just straight grilling, where the meat can be pulled off at any doneness, including rare in the middle, and you're just getting a nice crust on the outside. When you're doing it, you could use something that would one would normally barbecue with, right, i.e. a lower temperature, but just do it less long, in which case you're treating it more like a roast. But you'd need to get the temperature high enough to get a crusty uh, finish on the outside. Does that make sense, Nastasha? Yes. But I'm, I'm not exactly sure what you mean, so write back in, tell me more about it, kind of exactly kind of what's going on and where it falls in the continuum between grilling and barbecuing or whether or not I have the right idea about uh, what, you're, what you're referring to. Because I'm not exactly sure what you're referring to, so I don't want to you know, go the wrong way. Right, Stas? Yes. She's like, I don't really care. Whatever. Uh, okay. Uh, Aaron Lawton writes in from Portland, Maine, on chili oil and botulism. All-inclusive greetings. I like that. Doesn't want to, you know, doesn't want to make any statements on who may or may not be here. Just the all-inclusive greetings. <laughs> Everyone but Jack, it says, actually. <laughs> anyway. Uh, it doesn't really. Uh, I listen to your show every week via iTunes and appreciate the distraction it serves. Uh, distraction. It's good. Uh, I have long stood over questions about chili oil. My wife underwent a heart transplant a couple of years ago, and food safety is a preeminent concern in our cooking. Hey, my mom runs the heart transplant program, pediatric heart transplant program, at uh, Columbia Presbyterian. My mom, you know, hardcore badass. She's the cardiologist there, so uh, you know, uh, heart transplant uh, patients close to my close to my. Well, close I, was, to no, I wasn't even thinking about that. This dumb anyway uh you know anyway i think it's something i think about um okay we love making spicy sichuan food which recently uh frequently calls for chili oil i would like to make the oil myself due to my cheapness something we also share cheapness (laughs) cheapness uh all of us here really cheap bastards right Stas? yeah really cheap really cheap She'll walk to the airport rather than take a car, even if I'm paying for it. Uh, However, I have been overcome with fears of botulism. We are both in our 20s and have years of cooking and eating ahead of us. Can you allay my fears of contamination and provide advice on botulism-free chili oils? Uh, The chili oil I tried came from Land of Plenty by Fuchsia Dunlap. By the way, Fuchsia Dunlap, good friend Harold McGee, was showing around China. Apparently, Fuchsia Dunlap, badass. What I hear, although I don't own her book, uh, which only used heated peanut oil and dried pepper flakes with optional ginger. Uh, Barbara Trop also has a re- recipe which adds orange zest and garlic, uh, Chinese black beans, and sesame oil. Uh, okay, so look, the danger here is with the garlic. Uh, the, the problem with, with botulism in oil is this. Uh, if you add something like a fresh herb or garlic, and garlic grows in the ground and frequently has uh, contam- botulism contamination in it, uh, when you're cooking the, uh, even if you cook the garlic off in the oil, enough water remains in the garlic to um, allow botulism to grow in it, right? And when you have uh, botulism in uh, oil, uh, in, there's no off taste. There's, there's no nothing. So what happens is even if you heat the garlic, um, you let it cool, you store it not in the fridge, and the botulism spores, because you've killed all the vegetative bacteria, the bacteria that are actively operating, the spores re-germinate and create botulism toxin, which then is very bad, very bad bad. Uh, So how do you get around this? If you don't use the garlic, you're fine, right? Also, if you remove the garlic from the oil and there's only
only completely dried items in the oil when you're done, like dried pepper flakes, as long as you haven't reconstituted them with water, uh, then you should be okay. But if it makes you nervous, store in the fridge every, uh, you know, store in the fridge. And if it gets more than a couple weeks old, you can reheat the oil to 80 degrees Celsius for 10 to 15 minutes or 20 minutes for meat product. And botulism toxin is heat labile, i.e. It's, it's destroyed by heat. So if you heat uh, the oil uh, enough times, right, or high enough, you can actually destroy the botulism toxin that is already present. So the rules are uh, store in the fridge. Uh, if you store for a long time... Um, if you store for a long time, uh, you can reheat. If you, if when in doubt, throw it out. Uh, also, if you use only dry products, uh, you're in a much better uh, position. And thirdly, if you add some acid to the ingredients that you're uh, cooking that have water in them, the acid, citric acid, if you don't use ascorbic because ascorbic will get destroyed by the heat as well, uh, use citric acid. If it's acidic enough, the product won't support uh, the growth of botulism. So low water, uh, low, uh, you know, high heats, all these things will help pr- protect us. Does that make sense, Stas? Yes. Okay. All right. Caller, you are on the air. Hi, guys. Ben from Minnesota here. How you doing? Thanks for taking my call. A okay. uh, question about bagels and pretzels and um, the lye solution that I might be dipping them in. Okay. Um, I know you had kind of a nasty experience with lye and want to avoid that myself. I, I would avoid it. <laughs> <laughs> I would avoid that so experience. I, I, had, yeah. I was reading a paper. It looks like a lab experience, uh, experiment assignment, possibly, from Ohio State Pretzel Study. It's called. If you look that up, you might find it on the net. Uh, and, and they're using a 2% NaOH, which I assume is just is that 100% household lie if yep. I buy that at the yeah, hardware store? Is that what I'm using? Okay. Uh, uh, all right. We'll get, it, we'll, we'll get into the hardware store. Is, I mean... Look, if you go to the hardware store, 99% of uh, the stuff that you buy, unless you're buying something that's packaged as lye. Um, it's packaged as 100% household lye. There's uh, no other ingredients listed, but I'm, you know, I'm wondering if there's a you know, food-grade lye that's made and where I would even get that. There is a food-grade lye that's made. You can get it at professional baker supplies. Um, okay. I, okay, now that... That being said, I have used the hardware store stuff, <laughs> but I, I can't recommend it because uh, I, I believe it's possible for it to have a heavy metal contamination and stuff like that. So I, I don't recommend using it. I recommend getting the food grade stuff from the, um, uh, you know, from a, a professional baker supply. Really, don't use. Um, like some people have asked me, can I just go use drain cleaner? No. Uh, first of all, there's like all kinds of weird stuff added to drain cleaner. Um, it's just, you know, stay away from it, like aluminum flakes and all sorts of nasty, weird stuff. Um, sure. So, you know, look, if you want to run a couple of experiments with lye, then, you know, if you get the 100% lye, I wouldn't – you. I, w- I can't recommend that you use it. I would recommend you get the food-grade stuff. But as an experiment to see what happens, it works. Um, you know, do you have kids in the house? I do. That's why it's up yeah. high in the garage, tied up real tight, you know. Yeah, but, you know, uh, when I, uh, you know, for those of you, I don't know, I was doing a lot of experiments with uh, lye and uh, different bases, especially w- w- in things like pretzels, but also for nixtamalization and for the hardening of, uh, you know, a lot of experiments. Right, well, that was another route I could go. I've got uh, some Mexican markets around. Is that something that would be sold there and as what, you know? 
Well, they they have cal- they have calcium. Uh, yeah, they have uh, cal, which is you know, um, which is calcium hydroxide, but it's not the, it's not the same, and it has a different taste. Uh, you could use it. anything basic is gonna, you know, or you could go the route that uh, McGee does, where he cooks baking soda uh, to convert it to you know the more basic uh, form. Um, and, and, and then use that. Lye is great for it. I mean, I have to say, lye works great. Um, and for those of you that, you know, if you have a bagel, actually, you can just boil. It doesn't need the extra browning. It'll taste more like a pretzel if you add the lye. So most, I mean, some some bagel recipes I've seen have some baking soda in the boiling water and some don't. Um, but, you know, unless you need the extra browning and that little uh, taste that um, that you get from the, the basicity, uh, then, um, you know, you, you don't need it, but the Good main water. yeah, but the main flavor that you're getting in a pretzel from the boil out. First of all, you get that dark brown pretzel note because when you increase the uh, the alkalinity of the of the surface, you increase the rate at which the Maillard reactions happen. You get that characteristic brown pretzel color, but also the characteristic flavor of a pretzel is uh, having to do with that basic that basic outside. That so when you crunch into a pretzel, if you in your mind think uh, kind of. I don't want to hesitate to even say this because it makes it sound bad, but soapiness. You know what I mean? It's like, but it's that flavor of uh, basicness that is um, what makes a pretzel great. Uh, and so, that in the addition, in addition to never adding fat to people who add, uh, you know, if you add fat to your pretzel, I have a problem with you and, and your pretzels. You know what I mean? So, like for instance, roll gold. To the dough itself. Yeah, to the dough itself. I mean, it's it's, yeah, you know, yeah. it's an abomination. It turns into a cracker. It's horrible. You know what I mean? <laughs> Uh, it it's really oh, makes yeah. me angry. And I can, if you hand me a pretzel uh, and certain manufacturers who make – so my first rule is pretzels are twisted. They have to be twisted. If it's not twisted, it's not a pretzel. I call them pretzeloids or like you know non-pretzel-style things, right? But they're not freaking pretzels because uh, for me, one of the great joys of pretzels is the textural difference between the different parts that bake differently uh, because of the shape and break apart in your mouth differently because of the shape, all right? Boom. So that's it. That's it. Pretzel is pretzel-shaped. Uh, secondly. Uh, it, it, and I, I'm talking mainly about hard pretzels now. I don't have that much experience with this. with soft pretzels. I'm, I'm talking hard pretzels. Hard pretzels. If if you add any oil to the uh, recipe at all in the in the dough, it takes on a cracker texture. It's not a pretzel anymore. It's like a cra- it's like a cracker sole or something. It's not right. You know, at Bachman, the company, they make a pretzel that you would, looks like a real hard pretzel, but is in fact uh, got a crackery texture because they, you know, they I guess they took a hint from rolled gold, you know, or something like that, who adds an abomination like amount of oil to their thing. Best pretzel that I've ever had in my whole life is Martin Bro- Martin's Brothers uh, pretzels. By far the best pretzels. That you can get them over the mail order. They're made by Mennonites. They literally sit around singing hymns all day and making pretzels. But they're, the, the, I mean, not but, 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 you know, probably because of the fact that they, it's a relig- religious meditation thing for them, they make fantastic pretzels. You ever had those things? I have not, no. I, I, the kind I was thinking of making are more like these. You know, like the ballpark, big, soft, oh, sure, soft yeah. chewy yeah, yeah, large, so, big chunks of salt on the top. You know. Yeah, those. I mean, those are. You know, those are. Those are. Those are a valid product. I'm not saying anything against a, a, a good soft pretzel. I love a good soft pretzel, especially with mustard. I gotta have mustard on mine. No mustard. No. No soft pretzel for me. No, that's good too. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So. Uh, so yeah. So uh, for that, also remember when you're going to the baking supply, you can also get the pretzel salt, which is very nice because it's a. Uh, it, it, yeah, because you can't get that at the regular store. No, but the same place it's going to have the lye will probably also have the pretzel salt. Okay. All right. Check it out. Thanks. Right. Let, for, uh, one quick one about blending mixed drinks. I was, uh, I'm not a cocktail guy at all, but I was making margaritas the other night. 
they blended up just fine. Then I made a crystal light version for my kids with no alcohol, obviously, and it turned into like a slush ball in water. Is the alcohol doing something to keep the ice and the water together that you can't get without? Hmm. Or did I just blend it wrong? Hmm. I don't, uh, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, alcohol is going to melt the uh, the ice in a different way, and it's going to make it blend kind of uh, faster. But I mean, obviously, you know, people make uh, people make slushies all the time that are non alcoholic in the Seven oh, Eleven. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Smoothies work fine. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, a fluke. Yeah, maybe a fluke. I don't know. Maybe I don't know. I doubt there's anything in the Crystal Light. Crystal Light is actually has very little body, and maybe that's the problem. Maybe if it had more sugar in it. You might have more problem with a sugar-free because you're not modifying the. Uh, I, maybe that's it. Maybe try it with uh, something that's got a. Be. I'll try. It. I yeah. just had some. I could try it just with the regular uh, lime juice and, and sugar up this time without. Yeah. Yeah. It could be. It could be the fact huh. that the crystal light has no sugar in it, and it could be that the crystal light has something in it to mimic sugar. Um, sometimes in in um, things that contain uh, whatever crystal light contains now, it used to be aspartame, um, because there's no bodying effect from um, aspartame, and it's used in such small quantities, they often to sodas would add bodying agents to add back some of the feeling like there had been sugar there. And I don't know, maybe that mm-hmm. has something to do with it too. I don't know. But yeah, but give it a shot with uh, real honest-to-God sugar. I will. All right, cool. Thanks. All right, thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Love the show. Right. Bye. Right, cool. uh, Jack, let's take one more quickie commercial break. Come back and finish out cooking issues. you're wondering what's up with the weird meditation music it's called alone in kyoto by air oh nice well we're done with all that music (laughs) thank god i was not alone in kyoto i was hanging with my with my family had a fantastic time checking out all the temples i highly recommend them okay uh tom fisher writes in Howdy, Dave, Nastasha, Nastasha. Who am I? An idiot? Nastasha and Jack. Uh, oh, about finally! What? They said hi to me. Yeah, yeah. The first, yeah. first call. I think. Yeah. ISI about the ISI, which is the EC or ISI, the whipped cream uh, makers. This is the one. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm looking at ISI whippers and just grabbed a gourmet whip on eBay, but the head is filthy and needs new seals, etc. It looks like the gourmet whip and the thermal whip share the same head, while the cream whip profi has a different head. Is there any real difference among the models insofar as cooking applications are concerned? Thanks for keeping it awesome, Tom Fisher. Okay, listen. A little secret. I have a bunch of different models, all different types, and all the heads are completely interchangeable. They look different, but they all fit. They all have the same exact screw thread from the head onto the, uh, onto the um, what do you call it, canister. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they all work. And they all have the same exact through screw thread uh, with one exception, and it's not one of the ones you mentioned, of screwing uh, the cartridge, the thing that screws the cartridge in to make it go. They're all the, they're all the freaking same. Now, what can be different is the screw-ons, I think, for the uh, – for the uh, whatever the tip is called. I think that those might be different, but as far as interchanging canisters, they're all, all same, all same. Right? Uh-huh. Same. Uh, and I don't know if there's any real difference. I mean, the Thermal Whip obviously is different because it keeps things warm or hot because it's uh, a cold, cold rather, because it's insulated. But other than that, not much. Anyway, 
So it's all good. Mix and match, but don't tell the good folks at ISI that I told you so. Matthew Leaf at Landhouse writes in, Hey, Nastasha and Dave. Hope everything's going well with all your projects. Wednesday this week, I'm serving some snacks at a charity gala for 500 people. The dish I'm serving is short rib sliders with cheddar cheese sauce. The cheddar cheese is a whiz I made using sodium citrate and iota carrageenan based on Mirvold's mac and cheese sauce. I'm thinking for a large production like this, it would be cool to have the cheese sauce in squeeze bottles for service. And my idea is to keep the squeeze bottles in a steam table water bath setup. Do you think this would be hot enough to keep the cheese liquefied? Would it be better to put the bottles directly into the water section of the steam table or to set up a hotel pan with water above the steam section? I was hoping to get your advice on this as I don't know if I'll have a chance to test it out prior to the event. Okay, yeah, it works. I've done it. Uh, what the one problem you're going to have is uh, when I when I do uh, water water table setups, I use an immersion circulator, which is very accurate at its temperature holding. And then I have a top, and I custom cut holes into the top to fit whatever I'm going to have my inserts be. And I've done cheese sauce many many times. What you're going to want to make sure is that uh, wherever you're putting your bottles, you have like some sort of a cage so that the bottles don't fly around in there. They'll automatically find their own level of cheese sauce and they'll float in the top of the thing. But you have to contain them so that they don't just fly. Around around the bath and turn upside down and then leak water into the top of your cheese spout. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. You don't want water in your cheese spout. Gross. <laughs> it doesn't even have meaning. I like that. You're like, it does sound really gross though, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Michael Natkin. Good friend Michael Natkin. Listener rather. We never met him. We never actually met him in the real life. No, not yet. No, but he's like a blog friend or, you know, whatever, whatever you call it. From Herba Voracious, writes in about smoking. Hey, Dave and Nastasha. No, Jack. No love for you, Jack. Even though you called him to get him on a show. Yikes. Nah, crazy. Uh, I've got a question for you about stovetop smoking. I generally just jury-rig something with wood chips in a pot I don't mind beating up, usually hickory or mesquite. I know from modernist cuisine not to soak the chips uh, because of the temperature. The modernist cuisine says the lower temperature is actually not conducive for better smoke flavor, etc., etc. I'll let it rip over high heat until there's quite heavy smoke, then put a steamer basket in there with a single, single layer of whatever I want to smoke, onions, tofu, mushrooms, etc., and go for 10 minutes or so. I found there's a nice smoky flavor, but also a bit of sourness that I I don't love as much. It is fine, amazing actually, in dishes like uh, the frijoles charros, which you can see on their Bravacious website. But the sourness is less appreciated in other contexts. Can you give me any clues as what's causing it and how to minimize it? Thanks, Michael. Okay, there's a couple of things that can happen when you break down wood. Uh, there's uh, basically acetic acid and other things that are uh, created called pyroligenous acids. But I don't know if that's what, what you're talking about. If you look at uh, a good website, to, a good website, a good article to look at is contribution of phenolic compounds to smoke flavor by MAGA in 1992. Uh, and this, uh, you know, it's awesome because it's one of those, you know, it's, it's still done on a typewriter, so the font's in Courier, even on the web. It's like the crappy old Courier font that you got in technical documents, which Nastasha's too young to have looked at. Not that she looks at the tech- technical yeah. documents now. She doesn't give a crap about it. So it turns out that uh, the stuff that's formed at really low temperatures, right, is acrid and bitter, right, which is why they tell you not to soak the chips. Uh, The stuff formed in the middle zone uh, up to about 750 degrees uh, C is kind of the heart of the smoky flavor. And things that are formed above that temperature are uh, with higher boiling points, phenolic things with higher boiling points, can taste uh, acidic. So I'll read read from that article. uh, phenol compound volatility is also a factor relative to smoke flavor contribution. The low f- uh, boiling phenolic portion obtained from distillation of smoke was found to have primarily contain phenol, creosols, and guaiacols described as hot and bitter taste. The fraction dis- distilled at 92 to 132 C contained isoeugenols and syringols. Those are the ones formed in the middle when much hotter, but they're formed uh, in that middle range. Had a pure characteristic smoke flavor, and the high boiling stuff had an acid chemical sensory property. Now, how do I recommend getting rid of... First of all, also, what's formed... Has- there's a a lot of different things. There's the temperature of your of your 
the smoke makes a huge difference at which it's formed also the amount of oxygen in in this in the uh, in the atmosphere where the smoke has a huge uh, um, impact on the flavor also the moisture in your food everything makes a difference the temperature of the food everything makes a difference but I, I have a feeling this might help you if you put uh, two steamer baskets a deep one and a tall one in the bottom one put a layer of ice and then your food in the top one it's going to make a colder smoke and I think you might get some of those um, higher uh, boiling compounds to condense onto the ice, those acid things, those acid sour taste things, and you might get a cleaner uh, tasting product. That's how we used to do salmon. Uh, Nils used to do it that way. We were smoking large amounts of things. We would have a tray with ice and then on top of that another perf tray with our food and we would put that over large hotel pans with burning wood in them and those things never uh, came out with any of those kind of off flavors. So I would give that uh, a shot and uh, barring that maybe the temperature is a little bit too high turn the temperature down a little bit don't let it rip so hard on the on the smoke you want to hit more of a middle zone make sense does yeah sound good but please let us know how that works we got any more time here jack or we oh shafted yeah that's about it all right listen elliot papineau wrote in uh he doesn't boil his pretzels go boil your pretzels boil your pretzels do a side by side on boiled pretzels with uh um you know with some sort of basic thing versus not uh yeah because i've done that test uh many many times and it makes a big difference we still didn't get to rob trepaz's cheese question we did answer a bunch of his questions but the thing is i need a lot of time to talk about the cheese because i've been thinking a lot about uh cheese and cheese analogs in fact chris anderson from modernist cuisine uh is going to Modernist, modernist pantry is going to try to get uh, me the rennet casing, which is what you use to make completely cheeseless, cheese-based, um, cheese-based things. Uh, and we had a, you know, a, 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 I'm going to answer one real quick. No, Dave, I can't. You can't. No. I can't. Ah, mm, I got to go do the egg whites next week and the uh, and the and the meat analogs. Anyway, this has been cooking issues. We're back. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.